Amen. Thank you, Patrick. Let's pray together. We come to you, O Lord, even now, grateful for your word, thankful for the truth of it, mindful that the scriptures are sufficient for everything that we need for life and godliness. We thank you for the book of Psalms. We thank you that you have given to us such a precious book in the Bible to help us with every season of our lives, even the season of suffering. So open our eyes, open our hearts, O Lord, open our minds that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Speak, O Lord, through me. May we all submit to your word and apply it to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to Psalm 77. I understand that you have been journeying through the Psalms in the summer. What I hope to do today is direct our attention to Psalm 77 and bring you a sermon that I've entitled, God-Saturated Thinking. Find hope for the future in seeing God in the past. Follow with me as I read from the Word of God, beginning with the title. For the choir director, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, Then my spirit grows faint. Selah. You have held my eyelids open. I I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Selah. Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? 
You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. The waters saw you, O God, the waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. His life was saturated with suffering. So wrote one author describing the 19th century London preacher, Charles Spurgeon. During much of Spurgeon's ministry, and especially in the last 20 years of his life, Spurgeon experienced much ill health, which continued to deteriorate until his death in 1892. You think, well, what kind of ill health did Spurgeon have? Well, his ill health included neuralgia and gout, which left him swollen and red and with painful limbs, so that Spurgeon frequently could not even walk. He couldn't even write, couldn't even preach. He had debilitating headaches, and with these physical ills came frightful bouts of depression, leading him almost to despair. In one article, 1871, just 20 years before he died, Spurgeon said, When I was racked some months ago with pain to an extreme degree so that I could no longer bear it without crying out, I asked everyone to go out of the room and to leave me alone. And then I had nothing that I could say to God but this. You are my father. And I am your child. And you, as my father, are tender and full of mercy. I could not bear to see my child suffer as you make me suffer. And if I saw him tormented as I am right now, I would do what I could to help him and put my arms out to help him and sustain him. Will you hide your face from me, O God, my Father? Will you still lay a heavy hand on me and not give me a smile from your face? You ever pray like that? You ever feel like that? In his later years of life, Spurgeon had to even leave London during the winter months to travel to France so that he could be with the warmer Mediterranean climate, which would be helpful which would be a great help to his body. And yet all of this in his life, all of the suffering, which is not even mentioning his depression and the weight of his ministry and the preaching and the intense slander and scorn to such a degree that that he would even fall to his knees at times and he would sweat in his praying and, and he would pray in, quote, in agony and grief and with a broken heart, he would say. Spurgeon said toward the end of of a faithful, powerful, effective, yet 
ministry that was filled with trials. These 40 years and more I have served God. Blessed be his name. And I've had nothing but love from him. How do you get there? How do you live a life of suffering and a life of hardship, a life of anguish, a life of anxiety, a life of trouble, and yet respond at the end of your life that you've served God and you've had nothing but love from God? How do you get there? How can you find comfort in the pain and comfort in the confusion of your life? In the present moment, where do you find strength for the future? In the trials and in the troubles of today, how do you get hope for tomorrow? You see, that's what we are dealing with tonight, this morning, rather, in this psalm. George Mueller, the man who began orphanages in England, put it this way. The beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. Hear that again. The beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. But the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. He's right. He's right. You know, your troubling distress can soon be transformed into triumphant rejoicing by remembering, remembering what God has done in the past. Hear that again. You can live a life of joy regardless of the situation that you're in by remembering the faithfulness of God in the past. You see, we need to form a theology of remembrance. We we need to remember more than we often do. God must become the center of our thinking. Here's the problem. So much our, our trials and our pain and our affliction in life is so bad because we are thinking about self. Not God. You see... Christ must be the sun of our solar system. He must be the center of everything in our life so that everything revolves around him. He must be the center, not self, not me, not I, but him. We must shift from I to him, from me to him. You know, John Calvin put it so wisely. Listen to this. This is so good. He said, he said, the reason why so many examples of the grace of God from the past contribute nothing to our benefit and they fail to edify our faith is this. As soon as we begin to make them the object of our consideration, our inconstancy draws us away to something else. We get distracted. And thus, at the very moment that we begin to think about the past, our minds soon lose sight of them, and we move on. What is he saying? He's saying that you begin to remember what God did for you in the past, but then we get distracted, and we move on, and we forget what God has done. We forget all of the ways, and all of the years, and all of the endless times that God has provided for us and shown himself to be good. We forget about all that, and we soon focus on ourselves again. He's right. Can you relate? 
the busyness of life, the busyness of our calendar. You know, Psalm 77 can help us here. Because if you look at the title, Asaph wrote this psalm, which was originally a song to be sung for the people of Israel. And the only thing that we know about what prompted the writing of the psalm is in verse 2. Look at it. Look at verse 2. In the day of my trouble. Now, I love the word of God. Because there are times in the Bible when the author of the psalmist will tell you, here's why I'm writing the psalm. I'm running from Saul. There are those occasions. But here's an occasion where God, in in his infinite wisdom, leaves the setting open-ended and general so that it can apply to a myriad of situations. Verse 2, in the day of my trouble, what's yours? What's your trouble? I don't know every one of you by name. I don't know every one of you intimately. I don't know your lives. I don't know your situations. I don't know your hardships. Maybe there's somebody here whose trouble is inward pain. Inward pain. Maybe another person here in this room has a trouble, and you could maybe define it as as spiritual struggle. You're not close with God, and you know you're not close with God. Maybe another person here, your trouble could be physical affliction, physical affliction. Maybe a disease, maybe a terminal illness, maybe pain. And maybe your trouble could be family tension. Maybe there's tension in the marriage, tension with a child, tension with a parent, tension with a sibling. Or maybe a trouble for you could be situational confusion at work with the coworker, with the neighbor with a friend. And you just don't know what to do with your life. You don't know how to act. You don't know how to move. You don't know what you ought to do at this time. Trouble. Trouble. There's something in this psalm that is amazing, and you have to get this. If you miss it, the whole psalm isn't going to make sense. In verses 1 to 9, Asaph is going to use the word I or my 21 times. You know what that means? He's thinking about himself. (laughs) My trouble, my distress, my hardship. I remember my fainting. I have held my... He just goes on and on about himself. Transition in verse 10 all the way to verse 20. He's going to talk about God 25 times. He, he, your, your. You see, there is a shift in the thinking from me and my to you, God. We have to get that. We have to learn that. That is how we have God-centered thinking in troubles. Getting our eyes and our minds off of self and putting them on to the Lord. And what I want to do, if you're taking notes, is just give you two simple thoughts, two simple realities from this psalm. Verses 1 to 10 and then verses 11 to 20. And maybe you can... You can write these down and you can think, yeah, that's me. That's me. First, the present scares me. Verses 1 to 10. The present scares me. Anybody there? Anybody there with hardship, pain, trouble, 
affliction, conflict. Asaph is focusing on himself. He's focusing on his pain. He is focusing on his trouble, his situation, his problems, himself. Verses 1 to 3, follow with me as I read. My voice rises to God. Is that what your translation has? My voice rises to God, something like that? Okay, in in the original language, there's no verb in the original verse. There's no verb. Why? You know when you're emotional and you're caught up with feelings, sometimes you talk in such a way that you just don't make sense. Here's what he literally says. My voice to God. My voice to God, he he forgets the verb. He's so emotionally caught up in his trouble that he says at the end of verse 1, my voice, again to God, and he will hear me. He's so overwhelmed with trouble that he can't even construct a sentence. Verse 2, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. There's no one to help me. There's no one to bring deliverance. My trouble, my pain, my day of hardship. End of verse 2. So bad was it, my soul refused to be comforted. No one could comfort me. Nothing could comfort me. There's nothing that can help me. Do you ever feel like that? Have you ever been there? Maybe you've been in a place in your life where you've had so much pain, so much hardship, so much opposition, so much conflict, so much inner turmoil that you think, there's nothing that can help me. Asaph can relate to you. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, it's perfect. It's perfect. Verse 4. Verse 4. He's going to describe now a bunch of questions. You've held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I've considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. He's awake at night, and he's remembering his song in the night. That is, he can't sleep. Sleep is going from him. He's just alone, and he's awake, and he's in turmoil. Verse 7, his spirit is going to ponder something. Look at these questions. Will the Lord reject forever? You ever wondered that? Has God rejected me? Has God left me? Has God abandoned me? Is God done with me? Is God not, not, not concerned about me in my life? Have you ever thought like that? He says again at the end of verse 7, Will he never be favorable again? It's the Hebrew word for grace. Will God never show his grace to me again? Verse 8, Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Is God's love? Is his covenant love removed forever? Is God done with me? Did God give up on me? Did God forsake me? Did God kick me out? Verse 8. Has his promise come to an end forever? 
Verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Has God's love ceased? Has his promise ended? Has he forgotten to be gracious? I mean, he's asking all of the questions that maybe if you and I are honest, maybe we've asked them before as well. Is God there? Does God love me? Does God not know that this is hard? Does God not know that that I don't know where this is going? That that it looks like a dark tunnel ahead of me with no light at the end. Has God forgotten? Has his promise ended? End of verse 9. Selah. Think about it. Think about it. Ponder this. Verse 10 is kind of the transition verse in the whole psalm. Now, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Here's what it reads. Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High is changed. Now, if you've got the NIV or the ESV, you've got something quite different, don't you? The NIV has, this is my appeal, the ESV as well. That the years of the, the, my appeal is to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. What is the transition? It's both a God-centered way of thinking. The Hebrew is just a little bit hard, and both of the English translations translate it a little bit differently. The NASB in verse 10 says, My grief would be to even think that God could even change. Of course God can't break a promise. Of course God can't remove his love. God is faithful. It would be a grief to me to think that God could change. But if you've got the NIV or the ESV, the psalmist is saying this, the translators are saying. My appeal is to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I am going to remember that God is eternal, that God is eternal, that God can't change. Ultimately, it's saying the same thing in just different words in our translations. You know, at this point in the psalm, one commentator titled the chapter so well, he said, right here in verse 10 all the way to the end, you have the turn from self to God. Remember that. You have the turn from self to God. And we need to remember this because in the time of hardship, you think, why me? Why me? God, why right now? Why this hardship? Why this occasion? Why this person? Why this conflict? Why this? Why me? And the thinking is all about you and me and self. If there's a change... It's not in God, because God doesn't change. The change is in the psalmist's attitude and in his perspective. So hear that. In your hardship, even while you're going through the hardship, even if the hardship doesn't go away, your perspective can change. And that's how you can triumph and rejoice in your suffering. Which leads then to the second thought. If the first that you wrote down in your outline is this, the present scares me, you could write down, second of all, the past strengthens me. The past strengthens me. Verses 11 through 20. 
Now, a couple hundred years ago, there was a man who was a Puritan by the name of William Gurnall. And William Gurnall wrote this, and it is so good. I I want you to hear it. He said, go, Christian. Go and play over your life lessons in your mind. Praise God for his past mercies. And it will not be long before you have a new song that is put into your mouth for a present mercy. What does that mean? In your sufferings, in your hardships, go to all of God's past mercies and remember them. And it won't be long before you've got a song of praise in your mouth. So how do you do this? How do we learn from the past? How can we say that the past has strengthened me? Well, what I want to do, you can jot these down. I want to give you a few ways that we can remember. The key word here is remember. Remember. First, remember God's deeds. Remember God's deeds. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. Verse 11, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. Verse 12, I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Do you see the emphasis in those verses? God's deeds, God's works, God's wonders, God's deeds, God's work. He says it again and again and again. I will remember. I will muse. I will consider. Look at verse 12. Look at that little word all. I will muse on all. All right. Get started. Pull out a piece of paper and try to write down all of the ways that God has manifested himself and shown himself to be great. Try it. Try some time today, this afternoon. Take a piece of paper. Write out on a piece of paper all of the ways that God has been faithful. In the Bible, to the people of Israel, to you, to your family. Try it. I will meditate. I will muse on all of your deeds, all of your works. Charles Spurgeon said, are these the topics of your conversations? Do you remind people of what God has done for you, how God has worked in your life from God's creation to God's providence to God's redemption to God's provision in your life? We can meditate and remember on all of these things. Remember God's deeds. Remember his deeds. That will quickly take our mind off of self and put it onto God. But not only, first of all, remember God's deeds. Second of all, remember God's character. Remember God's character. This this is awesome. Look at verses 13 and 14. Look at how the psalmist takes his eyes off of himself and he puts them onto God. Verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. What God is great, like our God. Turn in your Bible just a few pages to Psalm 86. Psalm 86, if you would. This is a psalm where David is praying and he is asking God to be gracious to him and to hear him. He's crying out to God all day long. 
And he says in verse 5, You, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call on you. Verse 7, In the day of my trouble I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. I know that you will. Look at verse 8, same phrase. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Back to our psalm. What God is great like our God? What God is so great like our God? In fact, you have it even even in the book of Exodus. When God delivered the people out of Egypt, they are crying out, Who is the Lord? Who is a great God like the one that we have? God is holy. God is awesome. God is great. Look at verse 14. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. So he's remembering that God is holy. He's remembering that God is exclusive, supreme, far above all any other God. He is the one who works wonders, verse 14. And he is a strong God. Well, that's pretty good to remember in a time of hardship. Those are are some pretty good, powerful, God-centered attributes to focus your mind on in times of hardship. Remember God's deeds. Remember God's character. And now third, remember God's redemption. Remember God's redemption. Look with me at verse 15. I want your eye to see it in your own text. Verse 15. You have, by your power, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. You should jot down Exodus chapter 15. And maybe later today or tomorrow morning, you should read this psalm and then read Exodus 15, and you will see a lot of parallels. Why? Because Exodus chapters 12, 13, and 14 is the long account of how God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, and God brought them to the Red Sea, and God split the Red Sea literally, historically, supernaturally, and God led the people of Israel, two million of them on dry ground through a sea and then when pharaoh chased him god brought the sea back and killed them all and exodus 15 is that song of praise when moses remembers how god delivered his people and how the people of israel are saying what god is like our god you are majestic you are holy you are sovereign you are supreme you've redeemed us Redeemed. Redeemed. God redeemed his people. If what God did for Israel in a physical way, bringing them out of Egypt, was redemption and worthy of praise, how much more ought we here today who have been not just physically redeemed, but spiritually redeemed, to be worshiping God, worshiping Christ. You say, Jeff, what do you mean? Take your Bible, turn to Galatians 3. I want you to go to Galatians 3 with me for a moment. 
Because we need to get our, our eyes off of self and hardship and put them onto God and remember God's redemption. And Galatians 3 is, is such a remarkable section of Scripture. Because beginning in verse 10, as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to, deport, to, to perform them. Time out. That is Old Testament language for this. If you sin against God one time, you are under a divine curse. You don't want to be under that divine curse. Verse 11, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Verse 13, here it is, Christ redeemed. See that word, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. What do you and I deserve? Because we have not obeyed God's law. We are under that divine curse. We deserve that penalty. We deserve that punishment. That's what he said. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all of the things written in the book of the law. But, verse 13, Christ has come, and he redeemed us from that curse. Why? Because he took it for us. He became the curse in our place. When he died on the cross, it wasn't an example. It wasn't as though he was just a good guy that just happened to die on a cross. No, no, no. He was cursed by God as though he had broken the law in my place. And all of that divine curse that I have heaped upon myself, my account... Because of the times that we've sinned, Jesus came and took it. You just sang about it. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. Remember that? Is nailed to the cross. What does that mean? It's taken off of you and it's nailed to the cross because it's placed upon him. That's redemption. He paid your price. He paid your penalty. You think, well, 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 how does this work to me? Okay, I know that Jesus died. I know that he redeemed, but, but how is this made personal to me? Well, if you just let your eye look at Galatians 2 verse 6 a little bit earlier, even so Abraham believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You need to believe. You need to follow. You need to surrender and obey. Look a little bit earlier in chapter 2, verse 16. How is this redemption made personal to you? Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith. In Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. 
He redeemed us from the curse of the law. Wait a minute, wait a minute. In the last few minutes, as I've been talking to you about redemption from Galatians 3, I bet earlier in the sermon, every one of you was thinking about maybe a trial, maybe a hardship, maybe a conflict, maybe, maybe a hard circumstance that God has took you in. In the last few minutes, you probably weren't thinking about it because your eye was fixed upon Christ, wasn't it? And what he did at the cross and how he became a curse for us. He redeemed us. You see, even the last few minutes serving as an, as an example of taking our eyes and our perspective off of self and putting them on to God and remembering his redemption. What is this redemption like? It is saving. It's saving. What does that mean? It saves you from not Satan, not the demons, not yourself, not even hellfire. It saves you from God and his righteous, just anger because of your sin. What a great redemption this is, that that Jesus has come and he has redeemed us. And it is a sufficient redemption. It's sufficient. There is nothing left that needs to be done. It is a once and for all sacrifice. You don't need to, 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 to go day by day and offer a sacrifice. You don't need to live a good life to earn merit before God. You can't. He did it all. It's not only saving, it's not only sufficient, it's substitutionary. It is substitutionary. He died in your place. He did it. He paid for it. He took the burden off of you. He lifted it off of you and he placed it on himself. But that's not all. He took all of his righteousness, all of his perfection, and he places that on you by faith. That is the substitution. That is the great exchange of the gospel. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This redemption is also secure. I want you to hear that. It's secure. Those whom he redeems, he never lets go of. Hear that? In times of hardship, in times of trouble, in times of loneliness, in times of of conflict, in times of turmoil, and in times of confusion, God has never left his people. The redemption that Christ gives is also sweet. It's sweet because the Redeemer loves his people. He's like a bridegroom that rejoices over his bride. He is like a man that loves his woman, his bride, his wife. He he longs for her. He desires her. He, He wants to be with her. That's what the loving relationship is between Christ and those whom he has redeemed. It is a sweet relationship. But what about you? Can you say here that God has redeemed you? 
God redeemed Israel out of Egypt. And, and, and Asaph remembers that, and that's worthy of praise. But has God redeemed you? Has Christ redeemed you? Has he taken your curse? Has he borne your curse? Has he lifted your curse off of you onto himself? Then, then rejoice. Then be glad. Then remember. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Remember God's deeds. Remember God's character. Third, remember God's redemption. Fourth, remember God's power. Remember his power. Oh, this is, this is just, this is remarkable. Verse 16. Now, now what, what Asaph is going to do in our psalm is he's going to kind of zoom in. He's going to take the camera and zoom in to that account when they were crossing the Red Sea. Look at what happens. Verse 16. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, and they were in anguish. The deeps trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. That's a pretty powerful God, isn't it? What God can speak and a sea will see God and tremble before God. How powerful this God is, verse 17, that at his command, clouds pour forth water. All right, Southern California, you might not know this in the summertime, but it rains. In St. Louis, Missouri, it does. And God commands the clouds, and it rains. Verse 17 at the end, the arrows flashed here and there, speaking of lightning. Who can command the lightning bolt but God? Amazing. Here's the power of God. Verse 19, look at this. Your way was in the sea, and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. Hold up. Who would have planned to walk through the Red Sea on dry ground? None of the Israelites would have. None of them. They didn't see it coming. In fact, remember, they got to the Red Sea, and Moses turned to God and said, God, what do I do? And, and the Lord said, go, cross. God sometimes leads you. Number one, where you don't want to go. Second of all, you never would have thought that God would have led you here. But he says in verse 19, your way was in the sea. Who would have thought that? And your path was in the mighty waters. I didn't want to go there. And your footprints may not be known. God is always with his people. You can never predict the sovereign, good, perfect, wise ways of God. You, you, you can't predict God. God is unpredictable. So remember, remember, how do you find how do you find hope for the future in looking to the past? You have to remember. You have to remember. First of all, you remember God's deeds. You remember God's power. You remember God's redemption. You remember God's power. Finally, you remember God's guidance. 
God's guidance. Verse 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God leads his people. What a good God. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Later on, he said, I know my sheep by name and they follow me. He leads, they follow. In fact, let me show this to you. Take your Bible, go to Revelation 7. Revelation 7, this is a glimpse into heaven. This is a glimpse into heaven when, when the Apostle John, right at the end of the Bible, is writing about the worshipers in heaven. God's guidance is perfect. You know, think with me what a shepherd does. A shepherd loves, he is faithful, he protects, he cares, he feeds, he nurtures, he gives rest to. Look at Revelation 7 and verse 16. Verse 15. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Wow, what an awesome thought to think that in heaven, God is still the guide of his people. You know, for you and me, even here today, another way that you can find hope for the future by remembering the past is right here. Look, this table. Remembering what happened at the cross. This do in remembrance of me, Jesus said. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, this is a way that the death of Christ is proclaimed until Christ comes back. Do you want to proclaim him? Then remember him by the bread and the juice. Remember him. Remember what he did by his perfect life when you eat that bread and his death on the cross and the shedding of blood that forgives your sin when you drink that. Remember what happened in the past to give you strength for the future. Remember. Let God's faithfulness of old strengthen you through distress, even right now. God is dependable. Hear this. God is dependable for the future because he has proven himself dependable in the past. So whatever hardship you're going through, whatever conflict, whatever trial, whatever trouble, Maybe you're in it. Maybe you're not in it yet because it will come tomorrow. Take your eyes off of self and put them on to the Lord. You can have hope for the future in seeing God in the past. So live a life of God-saturated thinking. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for, for your word because it is so real, it is so relevant, it is so 
so applicable, O Lord. O Lord, every one of us in this room has had trials of different degrees, different kinds. We have had confusing, confusing situations in life that, that we didn't see coming and we didn't see an end and we didn't know how to cope through it. But may we remember you and remember the work of Christ at the cross. And may what happened in the past be a great and powerful motivation to worship you in the present and in the future. In Jesus' name.